Hi, I'm Dan, and I want to welcome you to Church Online. If it's your first time, please take a minute and fill out a quick guest link on our website after the broadcast. We would love to connect with you, no matter where you're watching from. You can also give online by going to lifechurchutah.com or by texting LCGIVE to 95577 at any time during this morning's service. Once again, thank you for making Life Church Online a part of your weekend. For more information, visit us at lifechurchutah.com. So if you've been with us through this month of June, we've kind of been in the series that we've called Represent, where we're talking about us representing uh, Christ to the world, representing God to the world, a world that uh, has us uh, in, in, a, in various uh, issues that we have to deal with, uh, in our culture today. And today I want to talk with you specifically about representing Christ in a culture that is primarily opposing the message that we carry, the message of salvation, where it's primarily opposing. And I want to talk with you about how we handle that. Because over the last several weeks, we've been looking into the life of a man by the name of Daniel, who was a prophet. His book is written in the Old Testament. And out of Daniel's life, we discovered how he and, and many of the other God-fearing Jews who were taken into captivity into the nation or empire called Babylon, they were taken into captivity because they had, as a nation, Israel had walked away from God. And so the Lord removed his protective hand off of them, allowed this nation, this godless pagan nation to come down and to conquer them. Most of the Jews were killed, but a select few of the brightest and the best were hauled off back to Babylon in order that Babylon might use them in the future. And so as Jews, they're now in this pagan culture, very pagan culture, and they had a huge struggle on their hands, keeping themselves pure while living in a, in, in a social environment that was very hostile to them. And this is one of the things that I have learned through the years, that when your environment is unsympathetic to your values, it will oftentimes become very aggressive in its opposition to you. It doesn't become uh, moderate. It doesn't just say, oh, well, I disagree with that, but good for you. No, it, oftentimes the environment, when, when, it's, when a society is, is no longer embracing the values that you hold, it will turn against you, oftentimes very aggressively. It, it kind of reminded me when I was writing this of a time in between my freshman and college, uh, sophomore college years, between my freshman and sophomore college years, I went back to my hometown of Fort Wayne, Indiana, and uh, I got a job in a steel warehouse to help pay off some of the bills, you know, that I incur, incurred in, in college. And when the guys who worked there and I'm just there during the summer. When the guys who worked there found out that I was in training for the ministry, oh, all the, the gloves came off at that, at that point. I mean, every gross uh, joke or story, defiled thing that they could throw at me, they began to do it. Some of you know what I'm talking about because you're maybe in an environment like that even right now. And they find out you're a Christian and all this stuff comes against you. That was what was happening to me. Uh, these guys would tell me about all their sexual exploits, and I knew it was a lie because they were way too ugly. <laughs> but they would, in detail, graphic detail, they would tell me all of this stuff, and then they would tell me in the jokes and all this stuff, and they wouldn't just be telling me, they would just say it around me. 
to make sure that I would hear it, because what they were wanting to do was embarrass me, come against my position uh, that as a Christian that I was holding the values that I held, and they, and, and they just simply wanted to make me look foolish in the eyes of everyone else. And so what I had to learn was to be tough in my faith. I want to say that again. Some of us need to learn to be tough in our faith. We give up way too easy. We cave in way too easy. Now, when I say tough in my faith, that doesn't mean being unloving because we are called to be loving towards everyone. You've heard the saying, hate the sin, love the sinner, or the other way around, love the sinner, hate the sin. And that is what God has called us to do. That's tough to do. Sometimes you hate the sin, you also hate the sinner who's committing the sin. But God calls us to love people. And so when I say being tough in my faith, I'm not talking about being unloving. But it does mean that I had to learn to be willing to live my life authentically for Christ in the face of very in-your-face opposition. And, you know, that's exactly what God has called us as believers to do. That is why the Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 4, Be happy when you are insulted for being a Christian, for when the glorious Spirit of God rests upon you, then the glorious Spirit rests on you. If you suffer, however, it shouldn't be for murder, stealing, making trouble, or prying into other people's affairs, but it is no shame to suffer for being a Christian. Praise God for the privilege of being called by his name. So first of all, don't be surprised when the world doesn't like you and and worldly people don't like you. Love them, but don't be surprised that they come against you or oppose you or persecute you. The main reason for that is your life represents something that they're not living and they feel conviction over it. And when people feel conviction, they oftentimes respond negatively, not positively. And if they can respond negatively and get away from the conviction, they'll, they'll do it. So they'll try a negative reaction in order to get away from the conviction that they're feeling. But our re- the reaction of people to us negatively is something that we should expect and something that we should actually a- even understand will come our way because really when you stop and think about it, uh, it's a compliment when you and I are insulted for our faith in Christ. That's why Peter said in verse 14, the glorious spirit of God rests upon you, and that is a sign when you're being persecuted that the spirit of God is within you and rests upon you. And that's exactly what we want to have happen in our lives. We want people to not see a religion. We want them to see the person of Jesus Christ, the power of God living within us. We want people to see Jesus in us. Amen? Now, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, the Apostle Paul says, we have to learn to fight the good fight of faith. Fight the good fight of faith. Now, the Greek word fight here that is used by the Apostle Paul literally means to strive fervently for something, to struggle fervently for something. And again, it's, it's kind of like a fighter. Like a, that's why I had them put the, this video together the contender, kind of an idea, uh, fighting a, a fighter who's fighting for the world title, the championship title. That's the idea that's behind all of this. Or a warrior who's contending with an adversary in, in, in hand-to-hand combat, life or death kind of a situation. It means giving your best effort uh, 
to achieve something. And in this particular case, the Apostle Paul is using this Greek word to apply to our faith, giving your best effort for your faith. Are you giving your best effort for your faith? You see, you can't be a coward and be a Christian. Jesus said that the world persecuted him so you can count on it, they will persecute you. And we have to learn how to fight this fight of faith in love, but we have to learn how to fight it nonetheless to be a contender. Now, you know what a contender is. A contender is not just a participant. There are some people who are happy to participate in certain events, sporting events, whatever they might be. Back when I used to run, before I injured my foot, and I can't do it anymore, but when I used to run, I always dreamed of running a marathon. Now, I was never able to do that. I never, I never got that good. I never got, was able to go that far. Uh, and it grieved me when I had to stop running. I always wanted to run a, a marathon because I just wanted to put on the back of my car 26.2. You seen those little stickers on the back of cars? That's what that means, that person ran a marathon. 26.2 miles is what a marathon is. And so that's what that means. Oh, I'd love to have one of those stickers on my car. But if I ever got in a marathon, in fact, I did get in some races. I, I ran several 10K races and a couple of 5K races, and I never got in them to win them. I didn't have that intention. I got in to participate. For me, just participating was enough. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about here's somebody who's contending in order to win. They want to take the prize. And so a contender is more than a participant. They want to be a champion. And when I think of someone who really knows how to contend, only one movie comes to my mind. That's me. That's me. Well, maybe not. Maybe it's Dustin. I don't know. I guess he finally worked out enough till he won the, the prize there in the picture. He must have put that together. Well, another thing about this Greek word that we translate in English, fight, it actually means you keep on fighting. It's in a tense in the Greek, which means it's continuing action. So you continue to fight. So in other words, we're, what you have to learn about your faith in Christ is this is not just a one-time you know, one event. Or you give your heart to Christ and then the battle's over. That's just the beginning. Now you've got to learn how to fight continually for your faith. You keep on fighting. You do not give up. If, you've, if you watch the series of Rocky movies, which I think they came out in like the 80s or something, the late 70s, and especially the first one, one of the things you notice, if you remember, Rocky didn't, uh, he didn't start winning immediately. He didn't dominate immediately. He took a lot of hard blows, was knocked down on the canvas. He had to keep getting up, determined that he was going to win something that everybody said he had no chance of winning. And that's how you deal with opposition to your faith. The more they hate you, the more you love them. The more they curse you, the more you bless them. That's how you win, folks. The more they reject you, the more you accept them. You don't accept the sin, but you accept them as people and love them. That's how you win people to Christ. You let his light shine through you into their darkness. 
And some of them may still reject the light that you shine into their lives, but I'm telling you, there are many of them that will begin to be used by you, God's Spirit flowing through you, the light you shine into their darkness is going to give them hope, and they're going to start moving towards the message and receive Jesus Christ as Savior. Jeremiah the prophet told the Jews to do that very thing. In Jeremiah chapter 29, he said, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says to all of the captives that he has exiled to Babylon from Jerusalem. Build homes, plan to stay, plant gardens, eat the food they produce, marry and have children, then find spouses for your children so they may, you may have grandchildren. Multiply, do not dwindle away, and work for the peace and the prosperity of the city where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. So in other words, God is, that Jeremiah wrote before the, the Israelites, before the Jews were taken to Babylon. And he said, when you get there, plan to stay, prosper, pray for the prosperity of the city so that it'll bring prosperity and welfare upon you. Do your best to be a good citizen. So that's really what he was saying. He said, I'm, I want you to settle down. I want you to pray for the blessings, for the prosperity of your enemies, and to basically become good citizens of the land in which I am sending you so that you can become a godly influence upon the nation, upon the people who know nothing about the Lord. Now listen, you may be in a godless situation now, and all you can think of is how to get out of it. And I understand that, because it's natural. It's a natural human reaction when we're in something that we don't like, when we're being opposed by persecution, uh, to try to get away from it. Nobody likes to be rejected. Nobody. And so we have this negative reaction to that. Maybe it's at work, and, and the people you work with are, are just horrifically on your case because of your faith in Christ. Or maybe it's within your neighborhood, and you're being rejected by your neighbors because you are of a different faith. Or maybe it's, it's within your own home and family, and your family members reject you because of your faith in Christ. But if you can allow the Holy Spirit to take you past your dislike of the situation that you find yourself in right now and begin to see it as a mission field, you will be surprised, you will be, you will be overwhelmed at how God begins to start moving things in your direction that will bring a change in the atmosphere of the place where you work, the home you live in, the neighborhood you live in. One such example of this very thing is found in Daniel's life when he and his friends were were sent as captives into Babylon, they, they were, they were uh, forced to eat what, what came from the king's kitchen, which of course was the best food of Babylon. And the reason that they did this was that Daniel and his, and his other friends were, were seen to be very talented, highly intelligent young men, and, and Babylon wanted to use these young men for their own purposes, so they wanted to give them the best food possible in order for them to, to prosper and do well physically so that they can operate and perform at a peak level. But Daniel and his three friends didn't want to defile themselves because they were fully committed to God, and they didn't want to defile themselves by eating food that wasn't kosher. And so Daniel asked what we would call the chief of staff of King Nebuchadnezzar's staff if he could, instead of eating the king's fare, if he could eat what was customary 
by his religious uh, beliefs and, and what was acceptable by his God. And then he said, I'd like for us to make this a test just to see how this works out. And so for 10 days, the, Daniel and his friends would eat only what would be considered kosher, what, what would be approved by God, and then this would be the test. Then they would compare themselves to the other captives who were eating from the king's kitchen, and they would just see who turned out better, in better shape. And Daniel chapter 1, verse 15 gives us the results. At the end of the 10 days, Daniel and his three friends looked healthier and better nourished than the, all the young men who had been eating the food assigned by the king. Now, you might look at that and you say, well, that's just a very small first step, or a small thing, it's, in, it's insignificant. But it wasn't because it was a first step to influencing the leadership. This is what I want you to understand. They were influencing the leadership of a pagan nation about the truth of who God really is. If God could take this, this, this food and make his people strong in body, so much stronger than the best food that a pagan nation had to offer, that was a first sign that there's something different about these two groups of people. That God's hand upon this group of people was significant and it was bringing about a change in the lives of the leaders as they watched this. And then by verse number 19, the Bible says, no one impressed the king as much as Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah as they entered into the royal service. So Daniel and his friends started representing the one true God in a very pagan Babylon, and little by little, a change began to take place. Not in the grassroots yet, but in the leadership so that to the point that by chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar, who is the king of Babylon, very pagan man, wanted people to worship him. This same Nebuchadnezzar now, in chapter 4, makes this statement. I want all to know about the miraculous signs and wonders the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how powerful his wonders. His kingdom will last forever, his rule through all generations. Are you kidding me? A pagan saying this. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the king of heaven. All, the acts are just, all his acts are just and true, and he is able to humble the proud. And, and Nebuchadnezzar was a prime example of being humbled by the, by the power of God in his life, which brought him to a place of saying, I now understand something I didn't understand before. Everything that Daniel and these Jews have been standing for is true, and this God is the only true God, and I am not a God. He is God, and we should worship him. Now, brothers and sisters, believers who are, who are in America today and much of the world are, are much like these Jews who were so hated and diminished by Babylon. So how do we handle our faith in the face of a culture that is becoming increasingly hostile and opposed to our message? Well, I'd like to share three thoughts with you. Number one, remember that God will strengthen you to handle whatever comes your way. Sometimes we look out there in the future and we say, well, what if this happens or what if that happens? I just don't think I can handle it. You never get grace before you need it. But when you need it, the grace will be there. You can't look out and say, uh, well, if this comes upon me, I think uh, God knows I, I wouldn't be able to handle that. Because if that did come upon you, God would give you the strength. He'd give you the, the ability to handle that. God always strengthens you to handle whatever comes against you. And this can happen in one of three ways. Number one, God's strength 
may come in the form of giving you favor with people who in the past were opposed to you. And that can happen. It may say, oh, Pastor Jim, you don't, do you really believe that? Absolutely, I believe that. Proverbs 16, verse 7 says, when a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies live at peace with him. God can put you in a place of favor even though your circumstances seem unfavorable today. In an instant, that thing can turn around and change for you. And so suddenly your boss, who, who has never seemed to look upon you favorably, takes a liking to you for no apparent reason. All of a sudden, you're, you're on his good side. And maybe some promotions begin to come because of something like that. Or your banker gives you a loan for the business that you desperately need that he originally said was never going to happen. You just don't. But all of a sudden, the banker says, we've reconsidered this. Or a doctor's report that was concerning to you is suddenly changed and turned, and the doctor says, what was there before doesn't seem to be there anymore. Or your marriage starts to heal when it seemed like it was beyond all hope. This begins to happen. What? It's the favor of God coming in to a situation you thought there was no hope for. You never know what God's favor will do upon your life or do with your, within your life and when it will kick upon your life, no matter what's going on right now. So this is what I want you to see from Daniel. He didn't want to be in Babylon, but that's where he was. He wanted to be back in Jerusalem, but he's in Babylon. He's a captive. And, but he let God's favor upon him put him in a place where he could be a blessing to, for God and to the Babylonian people. And he became, as it were, God's mouthpiece. He began to speak God's word God's message into the lives of people who knew nothing about the one true God, the Lord God, Jehovah. So this is what I want to say to you. Do not be looking for a way out of your situation. Instead, ask God to give you favor in your situation, to use you in that situation, and watch the miracles begin to happen. Number two, God's strength may come in the form of wisdom in knowing how to deal with the situation. James chapter 1, verse 5 says, If you want to know what God wants you to do, ask him, and he will gladly tell you, for he's always ready to give a bountiful supply of wisdom to all who ask him. Now, sometimes, instead of changing the situation, God will give you wisdom to know how to handle it. See the difference? The circumstance doesn't change. God gives you wisdom in knowing how to handle it, perhaps in a different way that will allow you to maintain your integrity while bringing change to the circumstance of the people that are around you. So Daniel used that kind of wisdom in challenging the food given him and his friends. The wisdom that he had in this situation was incredible because the way he handled it made the Babylonians accept the challenge as opposed to opposing him and opposing his challenge. And so uh, instead of bringing the challenge to the king's authority, it began, his wisdom became an opportunity to show what God could do to this Babylonian culture. This is what I want to say. Conflict with people isn't the only way to get things done. Many times God, through the years, has given me wisdom to handle a difficult issue that actually calms people's hearts and brings about the right outcome. Conflict isn't always wrong, but conflict shouldn't be your first choice. Because I have found that wisdom often achieves more in the long run than conflict does. Number three, 
God's strength may come to you in the form of just flat-out grace and sustain you for you to be strengthened in the face of the crisis. So James goes on and says in chapter 4, verse 6, the grace that God gives is even stronger. He's talking about the issues you're dealing with. As the scripture says, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That means that God will give us grace to the level of our opposition. God will give you strength to the level of your opposition. Don't start imagining what might be out there. Understand that whatever you're facing out there, God will give you the grace and the strength to face it when it comes, if it comes. Much of what you imagine is going to happen will not happen. It doesn't. But of the little bit that does, God will give you grace to handle that, that issue. Whether it's, it's temptation, he'll give you grace to handle the temptation at the level you're getting it. Or maybe it's trials or it's persecution or it's opposition, whatever it might be. Uh, this, another thing I want you to understand, that may mean that the trial may not end real soon. We all want the trial to go away real quick. But sometimes God gives us strength and grace to handle it, to survive during it, because it's not going to end real soon. He'll give you the grace to handle whatever comes your way for as long as it takes. You know, Daniel spent the rest of his life in Babylon. He never did go back to Jerusalem. He died there. For him, the test did not end in his lifetime. But God gave him strength for the entirety of his lifetime. And out of that came a lot of things. But out of that, one of the best things that came out of it was one of the most significant prophetic writings that are given to us in all the Bible, which is the Old Testament book of Daniel, which came from Daniel. And it came out of his experiences in Babylon. So remember, God will strengthen you to handle whatever comes your way. Number two, remember that light is brightest in greater or in great darkness. Now, we all know that to be true. I've shared this with you before, that when I was in college between... Um, when I was in during my freshman year in college, I, I attended a, a school in southern Missouri where there's a lot of caves in southern Missouri. I didn't know it when I went there, but I found out about it. And so me and, a, and, and several other guys would on many Saturdays go out what they call caving. We would go out exploring these caves. It was stupid because none of us knew what we were doing. But we got in and we all survived as it turned out. But there were times that we got back into caves that, that people were, we were, it was so dark back in there that we would all purposefully turn our flashlights off and then just see if our eyes would adjust, you know? Because, you know, if you turn the lights out in a room, your eyes adjust, and you can, if there's any light at all, you'll start seeing shapes anyway. And we turned, and we, we waited five minutes, waited 10 minutes. Nothing improved. It was so pitch black dark. And then we say, okay, uh, Fred, whatever his name is, you, you, turn, you turn your flashlight on. He turned his flashlight on. And just that one flashlight, not the rest of them, just that one, just began to shine so brightly, we couldn't believe it. It like illuminated the room of the cave that we were in, just the one, because the darkness was so dark that just the presence of the one light began to influence the whole thing. And then when the rest of us turned our lights on, it was like, boom, like a, like a spotlight came into our eyes, you know, because it was so powerful. That's what I want you to see here about your life in Christ. When you're in a dark spot, the light that God gives you will shine brighter than what you've ever thought would take place. Daniel and this group of highly committed Jews were God's light to a pagan nation. The darkness of that culture was so severe that, that these men stood out 
head and shoulders above everybody else because they were shining the lightness of God. Proverbs 4.18 promises that the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until the full day. God is pouring his brightness, the brightness of his spirit, into your life and through your life. And folks, his glory is going from glory to glory to glory. It's getting brighter. It's getting stronger. You are not defeated in Christ. You may feel like the only one who loves God where you live or where you work or in your neighborhood or family, but do not despair. Your light is shining, so keep on shining because the darker the darkness, the brighter your light will shine. Darkness doesn't mean you're defeated either. In fact, it can mean that you're going to be more effective. You may be entering a new season in your life where all of the seed that you've been planting that has seemed to mean nothing or go nowhere is about to spring forth into a harvest for Jesus. So don't give up. You'll reap the reward if you don't give up. Third thing I want to say to you as I wrap up is that Jesus Christ is our ultimate victory. In him, ultimate victory is ours. He said in John 16, I have told you all these things so that in me you have peace here on earth you will have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I have overcome the world. That means that whatever happens in the world is not the final word. I'm going to say that again. Don't daydream it. And whatever happens in your world is not the final word. There have been times when we look like, I know a lot of us are looking at the American culture right now and we're feeling like it's beyond hope. I want you to know if you study American culture in the last, what is it, we're 200 and and 36 years old, I think, this year. Um, if you study American culture, there are many times in our culture where we have, as, a, as, as the broad base of nation, rejected the Lord God and his ways. And God did not just bring judgment upon us. He brought revival. He brought incredible moves of the Spirit, documented times of spiritual awakenings that have taken place, the outpouring of the Spirit on Azusa Street and in... And, and, uh, uh, Topeka, Kansas, and in Hot Springs, Arkansas, which started the, the flame of the Pentecostal movement throughout America and now the world. It, it's a powerful thing what God has done. He did not give up on America then. He's not giving up on America today. We, we may feel like things are getting darker and darker, but I want you to know that in Jesus Christ, there is ultimate victory for our nation and for your life personally, because he's in charge and he has all the power. So understand this, the world does not have the final word. Your neighbor does not have the final word. Your boss does not have the final word. Disease not, does not have the final word. Your checkbook does not have the final word. And the doctor does not have the final word. Jesus said it. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Cancer and poverty and persecution and even death itself must take a back seat to the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ. However Satan tries to oppose God is going to turn it to good when you're a fully committed follower of Christ. So rejoice, church. Ultimate victory is yours. And when the day comes that you breathe your final breath of polluted air, you're going to start breathing a new celestial air that you never knew could be so clean. It's better than what you can breathe up on the top of Pikes Peak Mountain. It's, it's the purity of celestial air. 
and you will awaken into the glorious kingdom of our God where Revelation 21 says, he will wipe away every tear from your eyes and there will be no more death and there'll be no more sorrow and there'll be no crying or pain. All these things will be gone forever. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings and I will be their God and they will be my people. Hallelujah. That's our future, brothers and sisters. Well, I was just quoting that scripture, an old song we used to sing in our home church, Wes, said, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Some of you know that song. It says, life's trials will, be, will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race till we see Christ. This is Pastor Eric. Thanks so much for checking out our Life Church podcast. We pray that it's a blessing to you. For more information about Life Church, check us out at lifechurchutah.com.